This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. Our guest today is Jack Sharp. He is the leader of the Bethlehem community from North Dakota, and that's the people behind Bethlehem Books. So this is certainly very interesting for me as when I was growing up, certainly read a lot of Bethlehem Books titles over time, so it's great here to have uh, Jack joining us. Thanks, Malcolm. How are you doing, Jack? All righty. I just uh, caught three large um, crappies just before this broadcast, so I'm very happy. <laughs> I'm down. At, I'm actually down in Texas. We've, my wife and I have been here for three months, and uh, uh, we're getting ready to go home. A lot of adventures. I know, Jack. You said that uh, this is your this year is the 50th year anniversary of the founding of. Uh, the Bethlehem community, and that's a, a long history and a lot of time to learn about what makes community work. Could you just tell us a little bit about the origins and history of the Bethlehem community up to this point? Well, in the late uh, 1960s, um, there was a thing called the Charismatic Renewal, and it affected quite a few churches, um, certainly affected the Catholics, um, and the little Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon, uh, became charismatic as one of the few Baptist churches I've ever heard, actually, that was full-blown charismatic. And my mother and father-in-law just had run a young adult kind of ministry for um, a number of years before this happened. But there was just a sense, and it was quite the buzzword in the late 1960s and the early 1970s about community. And so they decided that uh, the church actually sponsored them to run a house where they would have young adults, uh, mostly college age, but not going to college. They were all working people. And to try to figure out some way to have uh, Christianity that was much more than just the Sunday meeting and the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And so they started this house uh, of young adults. It quickly grew, literally very quickly, in a year about a year or two, so there was 80 young adults living in about 15 houses connected with this one church. And there was men's houses and women's houses. And the people were actually, most of them were sharing their income in these different houses. They were trying to be discipled. Uh, that was kind of the buzzword, be discipled, figure out how to live Christianity 24-7. Uh, Jack, how did, um, like, how did you afford, like, how did the group afford to purchase or rent the houses and actually get this set up? Well, when you have, say, say you have five or six or seven working adults, young adults, all the, all early 20s, they're making a fairly sizable income. We had at one point a, a doctor, several nurses. Um, their income is considerable in a certain kind of way if you're just thinking about it for a single person. You join that together and you can certainly not have any trouble renting houses. And that's what we did. Actually, uh, one of our single women woman uh, owned one of the houses, and so that was just a matter of kind of combining their money to pay off the you know on the mortgage on the house. So that's that's how we did it, and that actually lasted for a number of years like that. We had a six month commitment. People needed to come in for six months. Of course, they were part of Bethlehem Church, but they also we had our own meetings, our own evening meetings, our Bible studies. We had uh, an different kinds of outreaches to um, different people are going on. And, and the young adults themselves were just kind of pretty much on fire for the Lord. What happened, though, as the years went on, and this it was a number of years, as 
the uh, frictions within the church, of course, see, think, just imagine a, a young adult ministry in a church where, where you have 80, uh, 20 year olds, uh, men and women, mostly, almost all singles, except for a, just a couple of couples. And they are uh, become quite a um, force, I guess you could say, in the church. It's not exactly like having a young adult ministry. It's um, people that are living together. And, you know, we, we looked in at, at this point, we were looking at how in the world do other communities uh, like us, of course, we didn't even necessarily call ourselves a community at this point. That actually took about 10 years of that kind of living where people would come and go for six months. Sometimes people made a commitment for a year. We hit a point where we decided that, well, maybe we need to have several years commitment. And so there was maybe 25, 30 young adults that made a five-year commitment to the ministry. Was that like in the, that would be about around 1980 at this point where you're making the longer commitment? Yeah, around night, around night, around 1980. Right. That's where we're at. Uh, we're still all going to the same Baptist church. The church is going, it moved out to a much larger um, facility. Um, there's still a lot of, um, we had the different kinds of things. And one of the commitments that people made to move into our, what we called house ministries at that point, was a commitment to change and grow. So that meant there was this inner healing ministry that was going on. Uh, there was giving up of addictions. There was giving up of lifestyles as how they lived it. and then. Um, we eventually, what it came to, there was about, there was five of us, my father and mother-in-law, myself and my wife, uh, and one single woman who decided, felt that the commitment that we were living just wasn't enough. And we thought that what we really, the Lord was calling us to really live out Acts 2. This, let's just make it common everything. Uh, it was, uh, it took us quite a while to come to that decision. But when we did, we said, well, if we're going to do that, we're going to need to incorporate uh, is a nonprofit some, somehow because um, it's that's a much bigger commitment than just sharing income, right? When you don't have any private property anymore. Right. <laughs> so we just, uh, at that point, we said that all the people that were still involved in house ministries, now y'all have made these different commitments, but we're just putting them all on the table that nobody's nobody is going to be held to anything. If you can't go this way with us, uh, that's fine. Well, most people left at that point because they just couldn't really see how um, they were called to that kind of commitment, which was just fine for the five of us that were there. There were some other people, though, that wanted to stick around and see what was how this was going to develop. Um, but then within the midst of that deepening commitment, uh, our Baptist church said, no, we're not going to support this anymore. Uh, this is too crazy. And so we uh, actually appealed to American Baptists to be our separate entity, but they, too, really couldn't go with us as one man put it so well in the using the hierarchy of the American Baptist he says well you guys it's just a big tax dodge isn't it and uh, we had to <laughs> we had to say well you know what you really don't do all this just for a tax dodge <laughs> you don't give up <laughs> so once you decide to you know go full out live like acts uh, how many people then stuck around was it just the five of you or were there more than that at that point well, there was a, there was five of us, and there must have been about eight or nine other people who uh, decided that they were going to hang in there and see how we 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 knew it had taken us over a decade to come to this commitment, 
And so we were not going to ask people to make the same commitment unless they've been with us at least six or seven years, at least. See, when you think about it, if we had to, well, actually, I was doing, at this juncture, I was doing a study in the early church fathers and uh, and also monastic movements like the Benedictine and stuff. And you could just see how what the wisdom was flowing there. They didn't allow somebody to become a full-blown member in a week or a year. You know, it was years down the line. And so we just adopted that motif because it seemed like a lot of wisdom. Right. So that would have been 1984. Um, like Good Baptist, we just formed our own church. <laughs> we just became Bethlehem Church. <laughs> I mean, we just, because uh, nobody else wanted us, we ended up in the uh, campus ministry. We're all downtown at this point now, and we ended up uh, buying a, or starting to buy a, an apartment building in downtown Portland. We had a number, we had actually some families that started getting interested in living community like we were living it. And again, uh, this this raised a certain kind of uh, temperature as far as, well, how, now how are we going to do this? Because it's been basically a single adult ministry up to this point. Now we've got some families that are interested. So that kind of developed along uh, in downtown Portland um, until about 1990. One about 1990, I think, at some point there, we really realized that we uh, needed to belong to something bigger than ourselves. Because over the two decades, we'd seen all kinds of little community groups dry up or blow up. Blowing up is really something. <laughs> when I mean by blowing up, the guy turns into a cult leader, and all kinds of crazy things happen, and everybody splits, or they dry up. People just lose interest, you know, and they just fold, which was, you know, fine. Yeah, I know. I've it's not even um, confined, you know, to religious groups. I mean, uh, I think the they said that the average life of one of the hippie communes that was started in the '70s was uh, a little less than four years, or something like that. You know, uh, communities tend not to have a long lifespan. That makes sense. I do know that the farm down in Tennessee is still going, and uh, <laughs> that's a long run there. That's got to be over 50 years for the farm. Yeah. But they were really into natural stuff, you know, natural planting and, and nursing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, midwife, we, they're a very pro-life crowd down there, even though I don't think they're at all religious still. I think it's all uh, secular. Yeah, they're an interesting uh, group, I know. Did a, did a little bit of reading on them, not a whole lot. I think we were very impressed uh, ourselves too back in the in the as we were becoming a communal community with the Bruderhof folks on the east coast those are the folks that came out of Germany at World War before World War II and uh, they lived a very communal life common clothes common education and we saw ourselves very much like them but we felt like we had a when we were actually were talking to them at one point we realized well these small communities out in Oregon were actually joining them but then they kind of you know melded into Bruderhof they were no longer their own thing and even though we just love the folks there we realized well we have some kind of an, our own particular anointing uh, to do something in the lord at this point uh, we had taken on see the other thing that happened with us part of the commitment was giving up our jobs, giving up our professions, and trying to find some kind of common work. That took us several years to kind of come to that. We tried all kinds of things that didn't work. And then um, it was suggested, well, maybe we ought to bake bread. And since only our ladies knew how to bake bread, 
Uh, I jumped into it. My father-in-law jumped into trying to sell it. And we ended up having a Swedish bakery that baked Scandinavian bread for 10 years. <laughs> and that was still in Portland? Yeah, that was in Portland. Eventually moved uh, the bakery moved over, though, in uh, Vancouver, Washington, right across the rivers where the bakery itself was. We did have an outreach, though, at Portland State University, a coffee house in the campus ministry. And we ran a, a breakfast lunch deal there for a number of years. And the bakery um, was uh, definitely common work, but it was it was there was not much vision in it as far as our, especially our young people that were growing up at this time. The several families that we had, the young uh, they just didn't see, you know, they weren't interested in becoming bakers. I guess that's the best way to put it. <laughs> and of course, we weren't bake. I mean, we were just doing this because we thought the Lord wanted us to. It was a great way to become poor. Uh, we were kind of went from basically lower middle class to low low middle class. Uh, in the years that we had the bakery, because the profit margin is very small unless you're huge. Uh-huh. And that actually helped us because as we became poorer, uh, we had the, we moved out of downtown Portland into actually where the bakery was. It was kind of a flop house in Washington, uh, Vancouver, Washington. We said, okay, now where we better find out who we belong to here because uh, we're the way we're going. We're going to have to really be connected to something bigger than ourselves because, like I said, the young people didn't have a vision for the bakery. So actually, what happened was that we said, who do we belong to? Uh, part of that came through um, crisis and leadership. My father-in-law kind of lost. We, we said, well, maybe we belong to the Catholics because I had been doing studies in the early church fathers. And I realized that the Catholic church was still the same as they were. You know, the Protestants basically think that, you know, Catholic, um, Christianity stopped at about 300 A.D. and then started up again at the Reformation. OK. And, and I, <laughs> by, by my studies, I realized, well, that's not true. Uh, in fact, uh, I remember reading St. Augustine. Here I'm a full-blown evangelical Protestant. I'm reading St. Augustine in one of his letters, and he says, I need to stop now and uh, find my mitre and crozier. And I remember pondering that, mitre, crozier, mitre, crozier. And then all of a sudden it popped in my brain that, well, my gosh, this guy's a Catholic bishop. <laughs> well, you could say, well, wasn't that obvious when you're reading him? And the answer is no, it wasn't obvious. I mean, I know a lot of evangelical Protestants who read the church fathers and they don't see Catholicism. But in that moment, I saw Catholicism and I thought, oh, this is all because he's a Catholic. <laughs> yeah. So in our, our group at that point, we're still in Vancouver, Washington, decided that we, we need to explore the Catholic church. And that's when we lost my father and mother-in-law, they, they couldn't go that far with that. Um, we were very poor, very, very poor. And, but we spent a year bringing different priests in. Uh, we had a good friend, Michael O'Brien, who's the writer. I don't know if you're familiar with Michael uh, O'Brien. Somewhat, yeah. Yeah, anyway, he was up in Vancouver, uh, Wash, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. He sent down a priest that he knew, that uh, Father Joseph Hattie, who really kind of nurtured this along. And we spent a, a year looking at the Catholic teachings and seeing how they coincided with the Bible. And after that year was over, we went to the local Catholic priest um, in Vancouver, Washington. He said, Father, we've got about 20 of us, uh, maybe 28 counting the kids. So we all want to join. How do we do it? And he said, that's the famous words, I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> he was a little, little overwhelmed, you know, because by that time, 
Our ladies had decided to draw, do their own clothing. They were so tired of the years of going to thrift stores and trying to buy enough clothes to look good. And so they decided they would just do their own thing. And so they decided to, to make their own clothing. It was kind of a pro-life thing where if they got pregnant, the, the ones the families, that they, they could keep wearing the dresses. They decided they needed to wear head covering, which was kind of wild uh, to us. I mean, a little scarf or something, just taking again the idea that they needed to be uh, as biblically orientated as they could get. And then uh, all of a sudden we started looking like Hutterites. I guess is about the only way I can put it. <laughs> we started looking like right, yeah. the young men. Uh, they said, boy, when we go outside now, we feel like we're visiting this group. What, what are we going to do? And I said, okay, guys, I don't know. What are we going to do? And they said, well, why don't we wear black suspenders? Now, I never wore suspenders in my life, but we had adopted black suspenders <laughs> for the men, which now 20 years, 25, 30 years later, I'm still wearing. Anyway, from that point, um, we went to RCIA. The, the priest gave us a book on community. We said, Father, uh, we don't really think we need a book on community. How about uh, you give us a book on teachings of the church or something? And he did. So in 1993, we came into the church, um, you know, 20 some of us at that point, I think it was. And um, it was really a very joyful time for most of us. The kids really loved it. And our many of our friends uh, thought we'd gone really nuts. So uh, they really thought we'd, we'd lost it. In fact, we had one couple that came to actually the Easter service and they just cried in the pews. As we were going over the Tiber, and that was, they didn't see how, you know, how are we going to relate from here on in? Uh-huh. But I think one of the reasons we're still around is because we became Catholic, because <laughs> there was a big enough uh, grape arbor to hang on to there, you know? Right, yeah. You weren't just trying to run something by yourselves. No, in fact, that was, you know, the interesting thing was we had a very big uh, community idea that you did things by consensus. The leadership always tried to have consensus in all our decisions. But uh, when we were looking at the Catholic Church that year, we had some folks from the Orthodox Church come in. There had been a, uh, a group that had been uh, some kind of cult that had all become Orthodox. And <laughs> they were talking about the, you know, the glories of Orthodox orthodoxy and everything. And they said, you know, we're not like the Catholics. We have consensus among bishops. That's how we run things in the overall Orthodox Church. And after they left, we looked at one another and we say, where's the Pope? Where's the Pope? Because <laughs> if you live 20 years in trying to do things by consensus, it it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You need, you need to have the buck stop somewhere. You need to have... Um, you need, well, I've talked about with you previously, you need to be reconciled to authority so that real authority can work. Because in our group, we were progressively becoming reconciled to authority, and that gave us a real opening to become under the Catholic life. And then from once you became Catholics, I know that then you ended up moving across the country. How did that happen? Well, just as we had become Catholic— this John Paul II guy decided to have a um, youth meeting in Denver. <laughs> and, and we said, oh, look, I guess Catholics go on pilgrimages. So let's go to Denver. And as we just before we left, we said, but you know what? We need to we need to go on. My wife had suggested, why don't we why don't we go into book publishing? Because there's all these great books that are just disappearing off the shelves because they're not politically correct anymore. And of course, this is a, we wouldn't have used that language quite in 93. 
but that's what she meant. And and I said, yeah, sure. Why why not uh, start a public? You know, we don't know anything about it. But uh, our our local priest did have a little printing press, and he did have a program to do typesetting. And so we went to the um, World Youth Day '93, and we asked the Lord. We said, okay, what we're going to do here? We're going to we're going to give up the bakery when we get back, no income, and then we're going to ask you to somehow provide for us to start a publishing house. So that's what we did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We went to Denver, and while we were there, uh, one of our members got an unexpected inheritance from an uncle. So when we came back, we sold our bakery, we bought our first laptop, I mean laptop, our desktop computers, and we started Bethlehem Books. I don't remember, let's see, I don't remember we got the money for the first 3000 It was Rolf and the Viking Bow, but we, we got the money to print those. We got them printed. And there they were sitting in our old bakery because we hadn't moved yet. And uh, we didn't have the slightest idea what to do with, with the books. I mean, how to sell them or anything. We, we were trusting the Lord, you know, that he was leading us, guiding us. And then we said, okay, so where's our next big chunk of money? Because, <laughs> you know, publishing is very expensive. It's, it's capital intensive. You need to be able to pay for a lot. Of, if you're going to have books, real live books, and you're going to have plenty of them, you need right. to fork out the money. Right. So we said, okay, well, the only place we have money is in our current building that we're buying. That's the, If we sell this building, then we have money to print our next book. And so corporately, we agreed, let's sell our building and print our next book. So right out from under us, we sold our building, and we had uh, no place to live um, as, as the time was coming up for the new owners to move in. What happened was is we... We met Father Fessio. He came up uh, from Ignatius Press. They were going to Oregon to do, they have some kind of retreat out there in Oregon once a year, usually they used to. And he wanted to visit us. He, We were converts. He loves converts. And so he wanted to know our story. We said, well, Father, we're giving up our bakery and we're going to go into publishing. He said, well, you know, it's going to take you 15 years to make any money. We said, well, it's good to know. You know, faith always needs to know what's going on. They talk about blind faith. But I've never, I've never agreed with that because faith and love together do not make you blind. You need to know all the factors. You, know, you need to know how bad it is. I, I tell people sometimes our faith walk has been like people out, you know, they talk about being on a limb and sawing it off, right? Uh-huh. And, and so I'm on the limb and I'm sawing it off. And what's happened with us is the tree falls down. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, not, not the limb. <laughs> <laughs> So that's been a great gift because uh, uh, as we sold our building out from under us, we had contact uh, with, uh, well, actually what had happened even before that, Father Fessio worried about us after he left us. And he called us up one day and said, well, how would you guys like to do our 800 number? And I said, is it a monthly check from Ignatius Press? He said, yep. So it's so funny. I put the phone away from me and I yelled out to our group at dinner. Do we want a monthly check? Yes. So I got back on the phone and father said, gee, don't you guys have to discuss this and pray about it? I said, not when we're not making any money, father. We'll just take it. So at that point, 1993, 94 now, we started answering the 800 number for Ignatius Press. And we still are answering the 800 number for Ignatius Press. (laughs) What a gift that was. You know what I mean? I mean, just to have no income and then to have an income. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was great. And then when we sold the building out from under us, because, um, you know, 
we were going to be book publishers. We had 3,000 books to sell, but no way of knowing how to sell them. And now we had an income. And so that's basically that income has helped support us do Bethlehem Books all these years because we only print the books we want to print, not the ones that are marketable. Right. That's a great gift. Uh huh. Yeah, not having to worry about whether it's actually going to turn out uh, well financially. Right, right. Even though uh, uh, I know Father Fessio is always hoping it's going to turn out well financially, but he's hung in there with us for the last 20 years. So um, we appreciate that. Anyway, Michael, so those those are kind of the, you know, we ended up moving to Cincinnati once we sold our house because we got invited out there. Couple to couple league invited us out as soon as we got to Cincinnati. Uh, this would have been 95. Uh, Father Fessio was worried his 800 number was traveling across the country. Nobody was answering it. So he called up some uh, folks in uh, Fargo, North Dakota, and the bishop there said, well, I've got an old convent. He called us up and said, why don't you guys move up to the convent? And I said, well, get the map out. Where is North Dakota? Because <laughs> none of us had any idea where North Dakota was. <laughs> and uh, we went up for a visit, and there was an old convent there that had been uh, not been in for 25 years or something, so it was completely derelict. But the bishop there said, well, we'll start giving you money to start remodeling it, and some of the local folks will have put you up in houses. And so that began our sojourn, 1995, in North Dakota. And how did you now end up in your permanent location that you're at now in North Dakota? Well, we were four years there in Warsaw, North Dakota. You know, it's always dangerous to pray to saints because part of our when, part of our publishing business, we said, well, let's pray to Maximilian Colby. Maybe he can help us because he was a great, you know, great uh, worker in, in publishing. You know, he did a lot of publishing. And uh, so mm -hmm. arriving in Warsaw, North Dakota, we said, well, that must be Maximilian there doing something. But the four years we were there, we outgrew our little place there and uh, – we also had some run-ins with the local priest who really didn't uh, like converts. You know, a lot of priests like converts, <laughs> but some priests don't like converts. <laughs> and so we were appealing to our bishop to, you know, bishop, if there's anything else, please let us know because it's very uncomfortable here. We're kind of outgrown the place and uh, we've been re working on it for years, but we, we, and he didn't answer me really, uh, but a few months Two months later, he called up and said, well, I've been offered a place up in Bathgate. It's the old state school for the blind, 17,000 square foot building. Uh, it's on about um, 13, 14, almost 20 acres of land. And we said, Bishop, we're still paying you for this thing down here. How are we going to handle that? And he said, well, they're charging me a dollar. Can you handle that? And I said, yeah, we can handle a dollar. So that's how we ended up in Bathgate. <laughs> uh, and... Um... And then I know that at uh, a certain point along the way, you became Benedictine Oblates. What point did that happen at? Well, that was actually even way back when we were first, before we were Catholic, we were trying to find, you know, when you're trying to live a life in the community 24-7, you need structure of some kind. And we were looking, I was, uh, we were looking at different structures. We could see there was a lot of structure in the Catholic Church, especially uh, then there was... Uh, one of our ladies might have been Jean Ann, my wife, but we got a hold of, um, oh, the trap families through the year, okay? That's how they celebrated their whole year um, sacramentally, okay? And uh -huh. It's a wonderful book. And as we were reading it, we were going, wow, look at all the stuff they do at Lent. And so at Lent, they did Stations of the Cross. We said, well, where are Stations of the Cross? Well, Mount Angel, Oregon, about 50 miles south of us. So 
we would go down year after year to the Stations of the Cross up the hill. They were kind of little stations. Actually, they're quite nice. Uh, at that time, they hadn't been fixed on for years. Uh, kind of a, you know, one of those things that had gone by the wayside. But we'd go up to 14 Stations of the Cross, and they're they all in German. We had no idea how to do it. But we'd go up, take the kids with us, and we would stand and pray in front of each station. Okay. Now, believe it or not, there weren't any Catholics doing that, just us ex-Baptists were doing it, okay? So when we first became Catholic, because of our going down to Mount Angel, we there was a, a retreat master there and guest master who was really open to evangelicals, any kind of folks. So he invited us down there a number of times. Uh, we got to know him. When we became Catholic, the, the abbot at that time said, well, I'll give you a person to even be like a spiritual director for you guys. And so when we were still in Vancouver, Washington, we had a Benedictine spiritual director, one of the monks, and they suggested we all become oblates. And so we said, okay, that sounds good. But we really actually became it after we moved to North Dakota. So that was in 1995. So some of us have been Benedictine oblates since then of Mount Angel Abbey. I see. And then at uh, more recently, right, you um, became an actually vowed uh, community, almost like a lay monastery. Uh, what when did that happen, and what does that entail? Well, we don't use the word vowed. I mean, when we make lifetime commitments, um, we, that's what we call it. We call it a lifetime commitment. That, that's that as Catholics now, they become private vows. I guess that's what you're referring to, right? Right. Yeah. And so we we make a private vow with the priest, and the transition that happened with us over the last ten years, especially being up in uh, Bathgate, is that some of the younger families that were growing up. We realized they weren't really they they were doing okay, but the community is such a well-run ship. At a certain point, when it's well-run, that we were doing things that the fathers and mothers really needed should have been taken care of themselves. And so we suggested that that it'd probably be better for them, and they saw it too, just to go out and be their own family unit and keep if they wanted to keep relating to us as Benedictine oblates if they wanted to become oblates. Well, we've had quite a number of families do that. They now oblates of Mount Angel Abbey. And um, those of us that are left, uh, there's a, we have a, about, I don't know, 13 of us. We have a number of single women who've been with us for 50 years. And then we have a, several, three, three younger people in their 30s who are vowed uh, to to carry out the ministry of uh, Bethlehem community through Bethlehem books. Yeah. So over, the, over these, you know, 50 years of, you know, going through all these different phases in the community and, uh, you know, experiencing all these different aspects of it. Um, I wanted to get your perspective on a few things relating to building a community. And one thing you mentioned on a phone call last week is the importance of uh, basic human formation as opposed to uh, like spiritual formation. You said that uh, that can be a thing that's lacking in communities sometimes. So what is human formation and why is it important to creating a successful community? Well, part of human formation, it, it, the way we see it, it's just basically growing up and becoming an adult. Now, that sounds pretty straightforward and... Uh, isn't isn't that what everybody's supposed to do? But the answer is no. In our culture today, and at, at least for the last 20, 30, 40, it's th I say 30 years at least, there's not been a lot of handles on how to how to grow up. Um, Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you're familiar with him, a Canadian psychologist who's out there been 
past few years giving all these talks about basically uh, owning up to personal responsibility, owning up to um, when we say human formation, it is basically growing up, maturing enough as an adult man or woman so that you can be responsible in the way that other people aren't affected by your immaturity. Now, this is what we've seen over and over again, especially it happened in the charismatic. There'd be all these miracle working things going on, but the people themselves were still immature. In fact, St. Paul, you know, he says you can have all these gifts of the spirit, but if you don't have love, God's love working, then it says you are nothing. Well, the, the gifts are still real, but the uh, you personally are not growing in, you know, all the fruits of the spirit from Galatians 4 or 5 there, the fruits of the spirit Love, joy, peace. See, that's the kind of thing of human formation I'm talking about. That's not a spirit. I mean, you can grow spiritually, of course, too, by just deepening the relationship with the Lord and, and, and the saints. People, people want to do that just kind of, okay, hey, now I, I, I want to be that. I want to be spiritual. Um, I think one good example, I remember years ago, a dad called us up. Uh, he had a large family. He said, now, look, I'm really interested in community. I want to join you guys. I want to know how many hours a day of prayer I'll get. And I said, how many hours of prayer a day you get? Uh, I said, you mean between uh, helping change the diapers and taking out the garbage and doing the hard manual or ma manual work or whatever, working with Bethlehem books? I'm not sure if you'll get any hours of prayer a day. <laughs> you see, there, there was a man who wanted the spiritual thing. See, St. Paul, the whole principle of growing in the Lord is, is what St. Paul says in Corinthians, first the natural, then the spiritual. And if you try to circumvent that spiritual uh, and not, I mean, that whole principle, see, Christ, first Christ, and then, you know, in the flesh, and then Christ now glorified, first the natural, then the spiritual. And if you, if you it's so interesting when you get a lot of people who are interested in really living for the Lord, don't want to put the spiritual first and forget about the natural. <laughs> Does that make sense? I think so. And something I've noticed too, that I don't know, you can tell me if this relates to what you're talking about is that um, because our um, society is kind of unnatural in a lot of ways, um, sometimes people can mistake the things that should really happen at the natural level for kind of like the peak of the spiritual level. Uh, they can imagine that like, Oh, you know, somebody who, uh, manages to do a good job raising their family and, you know, being a decent upstanding adult, it's like, well, surely that is, you know, like Christian sanctity. And uh, it's not, of course, it's a good thing. And as you point, you're pointing out, of course, it's a necessary thing to come, you know, as a kind of like the groundwork to build on. But because that groundwork is missing, we can get all these categories sort of mixed up. Right. And I think that's, that's one of the things about people who, who, sometimes think they want to do a community, I say, well, okay, you want, to, you want to do a community. Are you really interested in growing as a person first? Are you really willing to take the, the knocks and blows of uh, your child saying you're acting like an idiot and you, and you because you, you're mature enough to say, you're right, dear, I am acting like an idiot. What, what should I do? <laughs> I mean, even from your own child, you know what I mean? But we, when we were visiting communities uh, early on, and this would have been in the 70s, late 70s and the early 80s, we went around the country visiting communities, and we would hear all the wonderful things these guys were trying to do in their community and stuff. But my father-in-law and I, we would have one litmus test. We'd ask the wives, how are you guys doing? And then we'd know immediately how the community was doing. 
And if the if the wives were halfway honest, <laughs> we'd find out that they were oppressed or they were depressed or they didn't know what the heck was going on in their lives. And uh, we would just go, whoa, out of here, out of here. Uh-huh. It's one of the real groundbreaking, not groundbreaking, but one of the fundamentals for our community life has been the weakest person has got to be able to live this. The, the person with the least faith, the person with the least abilities or, or talents or anything. And if they can live this thing, then we're doing uh, we're doing what the Lord wants us to. Because he says, the humble will hear thereof and be glad. And that's always with our preaching or our teaching or stuff like that. If the humble people hear it and are glad, then you know you, you're, doing, you're on track. I was talking to another community leader who he was saying that the one of the dangers that a group that's trying to form a community can get into is seeing themselves as sort of like, uh, uh, you know, the Navy SEALs of uh, uh, Christianity or, or whatever, um, wherein people who uh, see themselves as able to take it to the next level will join the community and that that can be a problem both in how they relate to the outsiders and in what happens to the community ultimately. And it seems like that's what you're talking about, about making sure that the, the weak can actually uh, participate in the community. Right. And, and that, that again, comes back. I was thinking about our actual journey as Catholics. Now here we are a, a formed community. We're incorporated as a nonprofit group. Um, the wonderful thing about Bishop Sullivan was when he invited us into the Fargo Diocese, he put a stamp on us. He said, you guys are Catholic. So bang, we're in the Catholic directory. Um, <laughs> it was just like, okay, that's great. But our actual parish experience was very, very uh, difficult for 20 years. We basically um, went the parish as a group. They either loved us or hated us. There was no middle ground. We were either um, people that, oh gosh, the community people, they can, they can really help us out in some different things. So that's nice of them. Or they said, you guys are a cult. We were never called a cult before we were Catholic. I mean, we'd been going 20 years before we were Catholic. And then once we were Catholic, we were labeled by Catholics as a cult. <laughs> and I just try to say to people, you know, cults do not join the Catholic church. I'm sorry. They just don't. They, they lose all the main honcho of a cult will lose his, his, his power because he's become got to come under the Catholic teaching and the Pope and the, and the bishops, you know. Anyway, it's been it's very interesting. After 20 years of trying to work it out in, in different parishes, we finally went to our bishop and said, you know, Bishop, um, we really don't fit very well here. Uh, can we if what if we have priests who are willing to say mass for us? We won't be a, a parish or anything, but we'll just be like a like a convent, you know what I mean, or a monastery, and we just have our own Sunday services. Um, are you good with that? And our bishop said, yep, go for it. So that's been a real blessing because we expended an, a lot of energy trying to live as a group in a parish. And it just it just made people so up. In fact, one of the priests who became our spiritual director, his the parish we were in with him, they decided to have a town hall meeting and fire him. They didn't understand how Catholics really work. You can't fire the priest, you know. But that Uh was, again, because, you know, it was so easy. Like you're saying, uh, Malcolm, um, people either see us as super spiritual, right, or they see us as completely weird and not and just just not not something they can't identify with at all. So, so, okay. um, so obviously, like your community is a very intentional form. And one of the 
things that I've been talking about with other guests on this podcast is that um, when a group when a group of people are going to try and start a community of some sort, um, they usually veer in the direction of looking for something really intentional, something rather like a monastery. Um, and one of the things that's been coming up in our conversations is that that can actually be a dangerous way to start, that a community which starts off with too much um, intentionality as opposed to organic development can run into trouble. Does that relate to your experience or not? Well, I think so, because our intentions, even way back uh, at the beginning, were each one of us wanted to follow the Lord at whatever the price. And living together seemed like an impossible thing apart from the Lord actually doing it. Because, you know, when you get hard, we are, you know, Oregonian people, uh, hard-headed, stubborn, whatever. And and the the intention of community there, see, was, well, we want to live the life. How in the world do we live it? And it really, if there isn't a certain note of desperation in people getting together, then I would say, well, don't, don't, uh, um, don't hope for much. In one way, <laughs> if you think of the, uh, you think of uh, Saint Francis, he was he was desperate to live the life, and think of the choices he made so he could live the life he thought he was called to live. And then people gathered around him because he was willing to do that. And Saint Benedict's the same. Neither one of those guys is just a good idea. You know what I mean? It's it's uh, actually if it's sort of the, this kind of note of desperation. I mean, so many times we've had couples tell, tell us, oh, you know, so-and-so couple wants to live with us and we want to have a little community in our house. And we are, invariably will say, don't do it. Don't even get near it. It won't work. <laughs> They're always kind of like, whoa, what are, what are you guys? And I said, well, look, think about what you're talking about. You know, are you are you so desperate to live the life or are you just a good idea that maybe you can support one another or something? It's that just to support one another is not big enough, not strong enough. What um, what advice would you give to people who, you know, don't like, especially I, you know, I've mentioned at a couple of points in this uh, recording that uh, families within a community structure of the type that you've built is difficult. And it, that seems to be true. Other than the Bruderhof, I can't really think of uh, a community that included families that worked out really well. At least I haven't run across, I mean, a, a really intentional, organized community of the type you built uh, that worked out really well. And what would be your advice for people who don't feel called to that kind of life, but still want to live uh, Christianity in a more intentional way and therefore in a more communal way? Well, I think what what happened with us and you know everybody's different um different callings but we realized that these families that still wanted to relate to us we were too small as a group for that fa- that family to relate to by ourselves but if they were willing to get to a bigger point you know you think about maybe these people have become oblates of mount angel abbey so there's all those monks praying for them and they go visit the abbey and there's all that influence from that angle then there's our influence which they they come together with and you know i think of these families that are third order dominicans or third order franciscans um, that's one to me if families wanted to relate more intentionally together they should join something in the church that's already established that can give them something beyond just my family, your family deal. But there's a commonality there. I mean, 
one of the things that really blew me away when I was looking at the Catholic Church personally was the fact that I thought, gee, look, all the denominations that I can think of, Protestant denominations, they're all in the Catholic Church. Um, Ignatian, Dominicans, I mean, all the different emphases are all there in the church under one head. So to me, that's the the key thing. If families want to relate more intentionally together and follow the Lord, well, what, where are your, where are you, what draw, what spirituality are you drawn to, and are you willing to come under that? So that you're not just trying to make something up for yourselves, then is what you're saying. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I, you know, St. Martin de Porri's community down in um, uh, Kentucky, they started out, they were the first real hippies and the f first actually Catholic pro-life street people back way back uh, in the 60s. And they they joined the Dominican, became third order Dominicans. And that's that that, that community went on for decades, you know, because of that and the uh -huh. support that came through that. And uh, and those were ex-hippies, for Pete's sakes. You know, it's just like, <laughs> I mean, uh, but groups that are like like ourselves, if we had not joined the Catholic Church, if we had not become Benedictine, we wouldn't be still together today doing Bethlehem books. In our conversation last week, you mentioned um, becoming reconciled to authority and how a community can disintegrate into a cult um, if it's not properly reconciling the members to authority other than the authority of the leader in the community. Can you uh, explain that a little more? Yeah, I think um, I could see in the years that uh, I've been in leadership in our community, how you know, I write a book, you know, how to become a cult leader in three easy steps. And, and the point of that is that true Christian community as people are actually growing in faith and love, they are growing also in being reconciled to authority. So in that, in my mind, that means that you um, know deeply when Jesus says all authority is given to me in heaven and earth, he, he, that's an actual fact. And so authority is not a negative. It's, a, it's supposed to be a positive to us. And so to be reconciled to authority means at every level, I, I think I think personally of myself now, I'll just use myself as an example. I, uh, I, I would, you know, different uh, situations where I didn't want to come under some kind of somebody's authority or I thought they were a bad person or, or this or that, um, or just a general idea, you know, well, it's the government's fault, uh, it's, it's the pastor's fault, it's the leader's fault, and all that kind of stuff for myself the Lord has been working on myself for 50 years to know that authority, he sets it up. I need to come under it in a way that I mature so that if I need to, so I know when I'm reconciled to authority, if I get into a situation where the authority is acting uh, poorly, I can speak into it without being afraid. Uh, I might lose the relationship. I might lose uh, my place in the in the community. I might lose something. But the whole point of it is, if I'm reconciled to authority, I can um, speak into it, and, and and at the same moment come under. I think of I think of Moses, you know, who could argue with God about wiping out the Israelites. Now, there's a man that was reconciled to authority. <laughs> he can actually argue. The Lord says, "Stand aside." See, okay, now an unreconciled person would have stood aside. Uh huh. Right. Because, oh, I'm obeying God, right? I'm going to stand aside. Or how about Abraham? Uh, he would have uh -huh. thought it was the devil saying, don't kill your son. Because he'd had a direct command to kill his son, right? 
But if you're reconciled to authority, then you know that authority is always working for you. Authority is always there for you. And God's working through it. Now, that doesn't relieve you of the responsibility of being, you know, I think of Maximilian Colby, who just, you know, he, he, he came under authority when he was supposed to even to the point of death, but at the other times, he's, he, he knew how to speak back into it, you know what I mean, and push back on the whole thing. That's, that's what I'm talking about. And so with the cult, the cult leader wants, um, wants his people to um, resist every authority except his own, and that authority they're never supposed to resist. It's sort of this all-or-nothing thing for the, the cult member with authority. Right. I mean, I mean that was that was Jim Jones. He taught his his parish, his church down there, and I think it was L.A. to be afraid the government's going to come get us. We've got to be afraid of them. They're out to get us. Uh, let's flee to Guyana, and if they come after us, then we're going to have to do something desperate. And so they all took the Kool Aid because they were unreconciled to authority. I mean, uh, uh, actually, what prompted that taking the Kool Aid and killing themselves was a U.S. congressman went down there to inspect it. So. To me, that's a, a true Christian community. The people are growing in faith and love and also in the ability to come under authority and speak into authority when they need to and not be afraid of it. How many, how many Americans basically are afraid of authority when, when you really push them? You know what I mean? They, really, they, they don't really understand how authority works in their life. Yeah, that certainly seems to be a problem. Uh, and it, perhaps particularly among people who are going to try and build community because they usually have a utopian um, vision that they're going to try to work out. And they're worried that other authorities, whether in the church, in the society, that they, they feel that the only way they can work out their vision is by getting as far away from all those other authorities as possible. Exactly, exactly. In fact, when we first were becoming Catholic, uh, and, and we were in the, in the, in the process— we had people t warn us that, oh, no, you know, when you become Catholic, the priest is going to tell you what to do. He's going to break up the, the, your group. You're going to be really under the thumb. It's going to be awful. Since becoming Catholic, I say, can you find me a priest that will tell us what to do? Um, I haven't found any priest that hardly will tell us what to do. <laughs> we, <it's, laughs> you know what I'm saying, Malcolm? I mean, they just they're, they're not in that business of yes. telling you what to do. But boy, that's the fear on the Protestant side. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, the Catholic Church. You know, the Pope's going to tell you what to do. Sorry, guys. Sorry. It just doesn't work like that. Yes. I hope that's helpful. I know for myself, um, I, I had having the opportunity to come under my father-in-law, who had the original epitus to kind of create uh, living together uh, like he did um, uh uh, with our house ministries, it was very, very difficult uh, for me. Uh, uh, he and I were totally opposite personality types, totally opposite in, in things. And it was just a very good uh, almost 18 years of uh, experiencing learning how to come under <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> uh, one one thing we briefly touched on a little earlier, but um, is, is this imagining that the uh, – Community people can want to join a community or want to found a community can sometimes have a an idealistic idea that uh, you know the community is going to solve all their problems and I think you mentioned that you've seen quite a bit of that working out right and again you know um, 
The desperation I'm talking about is not a desperation of what you just said. I've got all these problems. In fact, that's one of the things we've learned early on. We allowed a couple of families that were uh, not functioning very well. They were very dysfunctional, come into the community life, and they actually got worse. It got worse for them because at this, uh, because the pressure, as you can imagine, ramped way up from where they had been kind of uh, in their own house, dysfunctional. <laughs> now they're in front of, uh, you know, 20 other people, dysfunctional. And uh, the other the other point is when I say desperation, I'm talking about personally, I want to live for Jesus and I don't care what it takes. I don't care what it costs and I don't care what kind of people he brings into my life, because for sure, our community was is built of people who are very unlike and never would have formed a club by themselves. We never would have had a nice little Christian club. <laughs> well, in fact, Father Leffer, when he first uh, uh, started to get to know us 20 years ago, our spiritual director, he said uh, he said one day to Jim Rasmussen, one of our longtime members, he said, well, gosh, you guys must be real friends uh, by now after all these decades. And Jim looked at him and said, friends? Uh, well, not yet. Not yet. I don't think we're <laughs> – <laughs> because, you know, think about it. We're the body of Christ. We're a little tiny portion of it, and the Lord's called us to live together. And, in fact, one of our key things is if somebody's not happy enough living out the life, we say to them, you know what? The Lord must have something else for you <laughs> because you've got to choose this voluntarily. You're choosing to change and grow voluntarily, and if it becomes a burden to you, well – then it's going to be a burden to us. So what else is the Lord calling you to do? And so that's another thing. We hold people open. You got to, That's the other thing about leadership. If your hand isn't completely open and people can fall off or jump off any time, then you're not, you're not in the right place. The tendency is to want to hang on, right? Hang on to the people. So you're saying that the, you know, like if a person feels called to opt out, the leader can't kind of uh, guilt them into staying or, well, he better not. He better not guilt him into staying, because <laughs> that's only going to make it worse. If you think about it, uh-huh. I mean, either this is a voluntary life chosen. You know, Jesus always with. You know, you can believe and, and go to heaven, fine. But discipleship is always an if. If you want to follow me, Jesus says, right over and over again, it's an if. And the minute the person that you're living with doesn't feel the if is still there, then it's it's time to let them go, go, you know? <laughs> so with, you were talking about, you know, not you, like each of you wouldn't have chosen these people. And it reminded me of a, a GK Chesterton quote. He said that um, the small country town is actually open-minded because usually there's only one uh, bar and all the guys in town have to show up in it. And of course there's going to be one or two of each type of person. Whereas in the big city, he said, uh, everyone can go and find their own club with people just like them. There's enough people in a big city so that you can find, you know, the person who's exactly like you and get together in a little click. And that's something that disturbs me about community building attempts in the church is that oftentimes they seem to be based on some kind of click, people who are all alike in some kind of taste or mentality <laughs> getting together. That's right. That's right. And you see, again, what, what does that have to do with, with the Lord and what he does with community? See, it's nothing, basically. You've got to, you've got to click. Okay, like I mentioned, uh, my father-in-law and I were leaders of the community for almost 20 years, and he and I were uh, total opposites and uh, had, had, had opportunity to learn to live together. And, um, and it's been the same in, in, our, uh, in our life. We have people who, I mean, 
left to, I mean, this is the work of grace in people's life, isn't it? The idea that Jesus is going to bring me closer and closer to him, well, that means he's going to make me more and more a person that's open to his people. I think of the uh, scripture uh, in Song of Psalms, I've come into my garden, my spouse, my bride, I and my friends. I remember reading that for the first time, and I went, whoa, what's this friends business? I thought it was just me and the Lord. What's the friends all about? <laughs> yeah. And But see, it's his friends, not my friends, right? So mm-hmm. he right. says he says to me, I think in any kind of community that's gone on, well, you, you think of, uh, even historically, um, Benedict decides to live a life for the Lord. He attracts a group of men to begin with, and the first group of men try to kill him. Well, that is a great way to start a community. Let's, let's start a community no. that way, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but it doesn't stop him from going on, and now there's still Benedictines 1,400 years later. Yay! <laughs> so as we wrap up here, is there like one key thing that you would tell somebody who's looking for community or trying to phone community, one thing that you think is the, the most important uh, piece of advice for those trying to do this. So you're talking about a person who's actually thinking, I want to live in community. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think the most important piece of advice I can say is to say to that person, have you given your life to the Lord? And does he have you 100%? And are you willing to go anywhere and be with anybody he gives you? That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's great because, you know, there could be all kinds of other motivations, right, for building community. But all the rest of the motivations are, you know, just human things or even bad things. And that's the only one that's that can be that foundation, really. Right. And I really, I'm a great, you know, I think of our families now that are relating to us. We're, we're supporting the families. And, and I think a group like ours that's communal and so intentional, if it's got a bigger vision than just themselves, like our Bethlehem books, for instance, you know, or the idea of, of helping these families stay together. Because right now it's a desperate, these are becoming desperate times. And we just need each other. And we need to find ways by each person saying, Lord, whatever it takes, I want to I want to further your kingdom. That's interesting you'd bring that up because uh, I've talked to some other people about this that if if a community is outward focused has some kind of mission it will um hold together much better than one that's merely inward focused on building itself up. That's right. That's been that's been my been our experience over and over again. Sure nice to talk to you Malcolm today. You too. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your experience. Really glad we could do this. Thank you. All right, have a great day.